Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explained Style Podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Alyssa. And on today's episode, it's back to the Halloween specials of 2022, and we are talking about my favorite topic. Well, one of your favorite topics. Yes. You have like 50. That's fair. <laughs> don't don't lie don't lie <laughs> this one is i have to specify it come on oh me oh yeah you it's oh. one of your favorite topics you have to tell it Jeez. introduce it to the world the marquis de sade just to let you know it's a reminder instagram facebook social medias history explains it all underscore podcast that's our how you find us Hashtag name. <laughs> we do archaeology in the archaeology in the news today in history, photo Fridays every single week. Plus, we do a post on the episode. So yeah, go check us out there. Leave comments. Let us know what you thought. We want to share this. We want to know how you feel. History explains all at gmail.com is our email, so you can reach us there as well. And if you can, please leave us a rate and review. That's how people find us. It also lets us know how you're feeling about the podcast. Because if we don't know how you're feeling, we can't improve. But welcome back to spooky Halloween season. And uh, you want to give a little disclaimer? Yes. Because <laughs> this one needs it. More than any other topic this month, this one needs it. Even more than last week's. <laughs> So yes, um, this episode will discuss sexually explicit content, uh, physical abuse, and sadism. And if that's not up to something you're interested in, feel free to check out another episode. Uh, this episode, as the other episodes for this month, will be listed as explicit. They are not meant for children. And for anyone not familiar with the Marquis de Sade, obviously we're going to go into his life and why he is remembered today, but most distinctly... As I mentioned, sadism. He is the person for whom sadism is named after. So that will give you a hint as to where this is going today. So Donatien Alphonse Francois, Marquis de Sade, was born on June 2nd, 1740, in a hotel known as the Hotel de Condé in Paris to his parents, who were Jean-Baptiste Jean Francois Joseph, Count de Sade, and Marie Eleanor de May de Carmont. She's gotten better out of French. I'm getting there, okay? <laughs> you notice that both of these people are French, right? Yes. Last week's and this week's. Uh-huh. And then next two episodes, they're Romanian. Yeah. Ish. Well, Eastern European. We'll, we'll go clo close to Romania area, but that's for next week. Not long after... Donatian Alphonse Francois was born. His parents basically abandoned him. But, like, that's kind of not unexpected back in this time. You really weren't raised by your parents. You were raised by servants. Yeah. So that that's not really abandonment. They just did what was normal for the time. And he was raised by servants. And, of course, when you're a servant, you just kind of give in and do whatever you're told. You don't say what's right or wrong so they kind of gave in to every demand that he ever made and he grew up and he was well um spoiled shocking shocking not really not just spoiled Ugh. he was an angry child 
I was going to say he had a temper. Bad one. Not good. When he was six years old, he beat up Louis-Joseph, the Prince of Condé, and he was actually banished, and he had to go live with his uncle, Abed the Sad. That's not a good thing. It seemed like it was, but his he, uncle wasn't a good His guy. uncle was a terrible influence. He's not the worst influence in his life. That's true. <laughs> but he's not the best either. Yeah. This is kind of reminding me, at the very beginning, of Caligula. So Caligula, Caligula was, I mean, it was the Roman times, but it was, he was, he was decent at least until he got sent to live with his uncle Tiberius. That's when all the crazy really started. This is on the cusp of that. Until, it, it also kind of reminds me of like the creepy uncle that you don't want oh, your kids to be around. that's a theme in a lot of these stories. Yeah. I mean, yeah, kind of not untrue. So let's just say his uncle Abbe the Sad introduced him to things he should never have seen as a child, particularly around age six and seven. And his mom basically also abandoned him to his uncle along with his father. Like they just didn't even visit, they didn't care, none of that. And she actually left for a convent. Not surprised there either. Well, I mean, I guess when you're the uh, scorned wife, you go to the convent. When he was 10 years old, he did start to attend school, and he attended Le Saint louis les Gans in Paris. And he spent the next four years at that school. And he, um, well, he got a lot of, he was punished quite often with um, flagellation, which he became rather obsessed with. Again, no surprise there. It's not exactly the greatest thing to become obsessed with, pain. It became a lifelong obsession. And when he was 14, he did join the military. He spent 20 months training, and he became a soldier in 1755. He then later gained positions, or moved up in ranks, and became colonel, and he fought during the Seven Years' War. Lovely. Probably got a lot more ideas during that time. I mean, you've listened to one of my favorite Mark Hager's son episodes from the Dead Author podcast. <laughs> this, <laughs> it brings it up and it's funny. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that podcast That's so much. True. And when he returned from fighting in the Seven Years' War, he was courting the daughter of a rich magistrate, which was a Montreux. Montreal. No, 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 no. Well, oh, the last name, yes. Yes, 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 yes. The magistrate's last name was De Montreal. De Montreal, yeah. Okay. And the father or the magistrate said, not for my oldest daughter, one of my other daughters. And he ended up marrying René Pelagie de Montreal. They would have three children, two boys and one daughter, and they would live at Chateau de la Coste in Provence. In 1767, Jean-Baptiste François Joseph, the Count de Sade, died. Marquis de Sade was 27 years old. Yay. Yay to the messed up family. Yay. Just like last episode. All families are messed up, I guess, in the 1700s. I think it's just all families could be pretty messed up. 
<laughs> You're not wrong. No, everyone got something there. So, after his release... For, wait, release from prison? We didn't get that far. I was like, wow. Where are you? How did like, you skip, like, the whole French Revolution and everything? I don't know. Hold on a second. Yeah, that's where you're supposed to be. I, I know. Okay, well, essentially, so we'll get around to it. So, obviously, so he's noble, and the French Revolution comes around in the 1780s, in the beginning of it. And he's he's noble. He's weird, but he's noble. So he's consistently put into prison because there's a big thing against the aristocracy at this moment. And at one point, he's released from prison. And obviously, the reign of terror is going on. Robespierre is in charge. They're trying to form a new government, or <laughs> several of them eventually. And he was kind of actually in support of the revolution because he's unlike all the other nobles, even though he grew up rich and spoiled, he was like, well, you know, if this is what the people want, this is what the people want. Plus, I, I'm i more interested in being a libertine, which means doing what you want whenever you want, however you want, to whoever you want. And so he was a very kind of laissez-faire kind of mentality, if you will. So he just kind of wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. So if the wave of progression in France is to do away with the monarchy and the nobility, then he would join the revolution. At one point, he was in the Bastille. We'll get around to it. But at one point, he was in prison. He got released from prison and earned the nickname, despite, again, being noble, Citizen Saad, which I love. And eventually, despite, again, being an aristocrat, obtained several government offices within the new revolution but while he was in prison one of these he ended up having like 32 years in prison throughout most of his life which is almost half his life in prisons for various crimes not just for the revolution but his family estate of lacoste was actually attacked and ransacked by an angry mob in 1789 and after he's out of prison and because his his castle of lacoste was attacked he moved to paris and that same year he was also elected to the national convention which i think was the first one that france had and he occupied the position on the very far left again because he's got very libertine values and he became part of the peak section of the convention which was actually notorious for its very radical left views while in the convention he began writing and he was very much into politics to an extent, but he wrote several political pamphlets. And in one of them, he actually called for the organization and implementation of the direct vote, meaning that people should have the right to vote, not what the aristocracy tells them they should be doing. Though it seemed like, okay, I'm, I'm noble, uh, I'm in the government, I'm making changes, I and working with the revolution, it wasn't all that good. He was consistently under abuse from the other side that completely opposed the aristocracy. Even though he supported the revolution, he did not get himself beheaded, surprisingly. And additionally, in 1792, one of his sons who was fighting in the military deserted, which is a very bad call. 
And this also caused an additional amount of consternation for the Marquis. And he was actually forced publicly to disavow his son in order to save himself from being put to death because he's noble. The latter half of 1792, his name was actually added to the list of emigres and the Boucheron Department of the National Convention, which meant that he was recorded as being put into self-exile. And it's not actually certain whether this was intentional or an accident. Now, although he supported the revolution, he claimed that he was actually against the reign of terror, which might be a whole nother episode, but that's Robespierre mostly. And uh, that's where the guillotine really comes. Madame Guillotine is the head of France's. Now, despite admiring the revolutionary writings of Jean-Paul Marat, who during the revolution, and she's also uh, he's also listed in our Madame Tussauds episode as well. Yes, he was he was a revolutionary author who had to stay in his bathtub for disease conditions. <laughs> it's an interesting story. But he was, um, Jean-Paul Marat was murdered and martyred by a woman named Charlotte Corday, who was against his, his writings. And after Marat's death, Marquis de Sade ended up writing a eulogy about him because he admired him so much. And around the same time that the Marquis was becoming increasingly suspicious and critical of Robespierre, which was a smart thing to do, but also a very not smart thing to do because Robespierre could sign your own death warrants and have your head cut off if you spoke against Robespierre. So it was, that's a whole different topic. (laughs) And Marquis de Sade was removed from his posts, several of his posts within the government on December 5th of 1792. And this also led him to being accused of moderatism rather than his libertinism. And he was imprisoned for nearly a year when the reign of terror ended in 1794, he was actually released. But by the end of 1796, he was completely destitute and ended up having to sell what remained of his family's state at the cost. As I mentioned, he started doing writing while he was in prison. And it started off with political pamphlets and really started to go into novels. Now, the thing with Marquis de Sade's novels, or at least most of them, is that on face value, they're incredibly disturbing and very difficult to read. I like reading them on the caveat that you read between the lines. It's political satire in between the lines. If you read it at face value, it's incredibly gross and disturbing. But that was kind of the point, especially given it's the reign of terror, it's the various revolutions in France, and it's something that's going to make an impact on the public, which was his point. So during that time and since, his both, most of his books have been classified as libertine, pornography, which is fair enough, gothic and baroque, and more in gothic specifically as a genre at the end of this. He wrote novels, short stories, dramas, plays, and various dialogues. And some of these works were actually written under his name. Others were written anonymously and then became written under his name later. And they were usually centered around adolescence, absolute freedom, a lack of morality, religion, and law. 
Something major to keep in mind, especially if you go to read Marquita Saad's stuff, he's completely against, I don't even, I'm pretty sure he was an atheist, but he was also incredibly anti-religion and particularly anti-Catholic, or at least just anti-Christianity as a whole, because I can't remember if France was Catholic or Protestant at this time. So he began writing in 1775, and the first kind of novel that he wrote was called Voyage d'Italie, and it was kind of notes on travels that he'd written while he was in Italy during his self-exile. And during this time in Vincennes, he began to write plays. So he's in jail again, he's in France. And in fact, it was his dream as he started to do this to become a successful playwright. He even wrote to a friend, Abbe Amblay, stating that it would be doubtless a great pleasure for me to see my works played in Paris. And if they were successful, a reputation for being a man of intellect might perhaps lead people to forget my youthful trespasses and would in some way rehabilitate me. Now, he might have stated that when he was fairly younger before the revolution really started to take place because that view pretty much changed. Now, it's not certain how many manuscripts, plays, and novels he wrote because partly some of them were destroyed during his lifetime. Many of them were destroyed by his son after he, his father died. Uh, particularly because, going back, that a lot of them were labeled as pornography because there's explicit sexual scenes and deviance and sadism in there, and it was not considered to be morale. So it was banned. It was, and we'll get into it. Uh, there's a lot. So we do know that he probably wrote around 20 plays, but it's not certain how many novels or short stories as a whole he may have written that haven't, including the ones that were destroyed. Now, his most famous book is called 120 Days of Sodom. And we're going to jump into the books a little bit. I won't try to get too explicit. But 120 Days of Sodom is his most famous book, followed by Justine and Justine's sequel, Juliet, as well as Philosophy in the Bedroom. Now, though he wasn't the only pornographic writer or sexual satirist at his time, he is the most remembered and this may be because he also practiced what he wrote about. Marquita Sun, for whom the word sadism is written about, or named after, it's not named after just because of the sadism in the books. He himself was a massive sadist and liked to torture people. And I'm, we're not really getting into that too much, but it, it may come up in a little bit. But we're going to talk about the books. Despite the pornographic nature of the books, the satire, obviously, if anyone's taken a look to reading them, you, you, like I've said, they're really difficult to read through. And obviously shocked even the audiences of his time. And most of them, after publication, were quickly banned and burned. And then Napoleon comes into play later on, and we'll get into that too. Because that's a funny story. So Justine was published in 1791, and of the top two, it's probably his second most favorite, uh, second most famous book. And it was written in total in two weeks. Dang. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that short of a period. No, you okay. wrote it in two weeks. Yeah, that he wrote oh. it. I didn't realize it only took him two weeks to write it. That's, I think... 
Well, yeah, because 120 Days of Sodom took him one month to write. Yeah. Mind you, he wrote that one on toilet paper, so I can imagine that one taking a little longer. Well, not only that, he was stuck in prison when he He wrote was in it. the Bastille, yeah. And it's not like you have much to do behind bars. Except he's noble, so he probably did have some more amenities than most of the other prisoners. That may be, but you also had to pay for those amenities a lot of times. He was rich. To a point, yeah. Mind you, it was the Bastille during the French Revolution. I'm sure they stripped him quite a bit of stuff. If anyone has seen Quills with Jeffrey Rush as the Marquis de Sade, it's obviously a bit fabricated, but it's definitely worth watching. It's very interesting. Plus, it's Jeffrey Rush. What's not to enjoy? Plus, uh, Kate Winslet and Joaquin Phoenix is in it, too. So, hey. Oh, you're also interesting in the Bastille, too. Okay, I thought it was just 120 Days of Sodom. All right, because he was in, yeah, he was in the Bastille quite a bit. And, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah he was in there for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's so much with that one. Now, the story of Justine is set prior to the revolution and depicts a very young Christian girl named Justine, age 12, and follows her all the way up to age 26. She's en route to France, and along the way, she encounters numerous situations that test her Christian piety and morality, which was a common theme in a lot of his books. And much of the sexual abuse within the book are at the hands of clerics, monks, judges, and nobles. Men in power, essentially, abusing women with no power. The revelations of her journey within the book are shared to a woman named Madame Losange, who at the very end, spoilers, turns out to be her long-lost sister. And Juliette, the sequel, published in 1799, we follow... Justine on, or sorry, Juliette, on her life from ages 13 to 30, and unlike Justine, is an anti-heroine. Juliette, though raised in a convent, she was seduced at age 13 by a woman that shows her that morality, religion, and other social constructs are absolutely meaningless, which are also very similar to a libertine mentality. The overall theme of the novel is that the only aim in life is to enjoy oneself at no matter whose expense, which is a easy way of summing up Marquis de Sade. Now, throughout the book, Juliet follows the theme to the extreme and engages in explicit depravity, as well as murdering her way to her goal, including killing family members and friends, which is a... So not something most people want to read about. And Marquis de Sade's very lengthy, most famous novel, being 120 Days of Sodom, published in 1785, about that he writes, I wish to present the most impure tale that has ever been written since the world exists. And we're going to get into it, and I think he succeeded on that one. So the plot of 120 Days of Sodom is pretty straightforward. It's set in a remote castle, and over the course of just five months, the reader follows the acts of four very wealthy libertines who lock themselves up in the castle, along with several accomplices and several victims. During these five months, the men and women in there as well enact the most atrocious sexual acts on their victims. Dessant claimed that there are 600 passions outlined in the story, as he put it. He also prefaces the story with, quote, a warning, letting the reader know that about the salaciousness ahead. 
and that they should not be horrified by them, quote, as everyone has their own tastes. Yeah. yeah. He even writes that the meter might want to have doubts about what lies ahead, saying, it's going to be pretty explicit and hard to read through this, but take it, don't take it at face value. I'll try not to. It's hard. I've tried to read, I have that book, and it's really, really gross to read. Thanks for the info. You're welcome. So the story, as we mentioned earlier, was written while he's in the Bastille and written on a roll of toilet paper, which still exists to this day. We're going to get into that. And he actually had to write very carefully. On, obviously, it's toilet paper, but toilet paper from the 1790s. The 1780s, he's in the Bastille. And he had to write it. And remember, also, this is not a time of click pens and mechanical pencils or pencils really in general. This is done in quill and ink on toilet paper. There are pictures, we'll have them. But yeah, that sounds really, really difficult to do given I don't know how thick or dis easily disposable toilet paper was back then. I can't imagine it was really nice like it is today. I imagine it was probably one or two ply and quite coarse. But he had to scratch on it with the quill pen very carefully. And it was written over the course of approximately 37 days. And the entire roll of toilet paper is 39 feet long with tiny, tiny print. Now, while he was writing it, he actually kept it hidden in his cell in a crack in the wall. He kept it hidden so he could work on it because if they stormed the Bastille and he had to leave, he also wanted to make sure it was in a safe place, which is exactly what happened. It was actually saved. I don't know if anyone knew that it was in there. I could not find that information. But just days before the Bastille was, he was transferred out of the Bastille to, I think, Charenton Mental Asylum, days before the Bastille was stormed by the French Revolution. And so he wasn't there anymore. And But it was actually saved just a couple of days also before by a man named Arnold de Saint-Maxime, or Maximum, and he took it home with him. I don't know if he knew the marquee, or he happened to just find it, or he just decided he was going to take this home. And, yeah. But we'll have more on that in a little bit. Philosophy in the Bedroom, which was published in 1795, is written in the form of a dramatic dialogue. Initially viewed as pornographic, as with most of his work, Today, it's actually viewed as a sociopolitical drama. Uh, I have this one, but I don't think I've read it yet. But uh, yeah, it's not nice, though. This is probably one of the worst ones. Although 120 Days is probably the most disturbing one of all of them. Now, Philosophy in the Bedroom takes place, obviously, in a bedroom. And the two main characters in the dialogue are arguing that the only moral system for the revolution to adopt is libertinism. So these are two people who want to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, to whomever they want. And Desaad writes that if the people of France do not adopt the libertine philosophy, then it will be destined to return to a monarchy, which of course it did. Cue <laughs> <Q> Napoleon. <laughs> I mean, you mean Le Empire. <laughs> yeah. And the major theme about the book are uh, Marquis Desaad's specific views on social morals, 
and he argues that one must embrace atheism, reject society's beliefs about pleasure and pain, and that if any crime is committed while seeking pleasure, it cannot be condemned. But can't it? I'm sure that it can, yeah. As long as, I mean, if it's legal, maybe, maybe not. But uh, if it's not legal, yeah, yeah, it should be. <laughs> there are child laws for a reason. Oh, really? Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, we can circumvent those quite easily. Y yeah. Well, back to the sexually explicit, <laughs> disturbing characters. So the main characters in Felicity of the Bedroom are Dolmans, Madame de Saint-Angers, and the virgin, Eugenie. And all the characters are bisexual and engage in adultery, sodomy, incest, various orgies, and obviously sadism and torture. The story itself was actually turned into a play in 2003, this is interesting, titled Triple X. And it was performed in a number of cities throughout Europe in 2003, apparently, unsurprisingly, caused a lot of controversy because it not only featured simulated sex on the stage, but also featured audience participation. I don't know how. I really did not want to try looking that one up. Nope. I'm good. <laughs> so it's claimed that most of his novels, though he does write explicitly and tries to insert all modes of depravity as possible, which is exactly what he says he tries to do in all of his books, he does tend to repeat himself in terms of various acts it's like i want to come up with as many ways of torture and sexual depravity as possible but i guess his his imagination only had so much limit <laughs> i don't know however despite the novels being incredibly explicit as we just mentioned they are not written solely for the purpose of pornography as i mentioned he did a lot of political writing he intersperses the action within the books with reflections and views of the characters, uh, their uh, individual likes and dislikes, social moralities, and politics. And during the time that the Marquis was writing his erotic satirical novels, the birth of the Gothic novel had just begun. This is really fun. Uh, I've had a chance. I read partly this some time ago, but I have not finished the book. The first known gothic genre novel was written by a man named Matthew Lewis, also in the book's called The Monk, and it was written in 1796. It's a lot older than you think. All right. Yeah. So gothic novels as a genre are then, as in now, defined and characterized as, quote, relying heavily on magic and phantasmagoria. So while Marquis was writing, there were some who tried to group his books into this category as it was emerging, and he was incredibly vocal that, no, my books are not gothic. They, they, there's no magic or anything whatsoever, and stated that they incorporated supernatural forces and that his books not having those did obviously not fit into the category. Additionally, he publicly stated that the genre created a dilemma, that the author had to choose between elaborate explanations for the supernatural or choosing none at all. Either case would leave the ending incredulous, and Marquis de Sade believed that the ultimate goal of an author was to show the most accurate portrayal of a man 
and that the Gothic novels do not do this. It did seem that he did enjoy reading them, though, as he writes about the monk, quote, it is without question one of the genre's best achievements. It does seem that though the Marquis decided to try to write his, or try a hand at writing Gothic novels, as there is a book, and I do own it, called The Gothic Stories of the Marquis de Sade, which is a compilation of some of his hand, uh, his trying at writing supernatural novels. And one of them is called Crimes of Love. And in this, he combines sex, horror, uh, blood, corpses, and lust. So like a modern day horror movie. Oh, my fave. I mean, horror is funny. You don't have to have sex combined with it, but sex and death usually go hand in hand in a lot of horror movies. Now, surprisingly, compared to Justine, Crimes of Love is actually relatively tame because he tries to make it more about psychological torture than necessarily physical torture. Oh, in the opening of his Gothic short story called Eugenie de Franval, he writes, to enlighten mankind and improve its morals is the only lesson which we offer in this story. In reading it, may the world discover how great is the peril which follows the footsteps of those who will stop at nothing to satisfy their desires. So those are the books or the more popular books of the Marquis de Sade. As I mentioned, obviously that he had been in several prisons about 32 years, most of his life. And he also was somewhere between half that was prison and half that was just various mental asylums. So the various, uh, various scandals of the Marquis de Sade and his various imprisonments are numerous. There's tons, but we're not going to get into all of them. But as I mentioned before, he believed in the liberty of existence. And he also, by today's standards, could probably be called a hedonist or probably even a sexual hedonist or sexual addict. I would not put it past to call him those things at all. As I mentioned before, he was also an atheist and completely against any religion and a church and was very vocal against them, and particularly the public, obviously. And in fact, one of the many charges against him was actually blasphemy. We're going to get into that. During his life, he was, like I said, incarcerated for about 32 years and spent seven years at Chateau de Vincennes, five years in the Bastille, two years in a French fortress, one year and Madalonette Convent, three years in Bicet Asylum, one year at Saint-Pelagie Prison, and a total of 12 years at Charenton Asylum in Paris. He was in Charenton more than one time. <laughs> it was a couple years here, he was out, he was back in. Now, the first known account took place in May of 1763, so not long after his dad died-ish. And he was charged with outrage to public morals, blasphemy, and profanation of the image of Christ. Oh, good. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, or again, this is the Marquis de Sade. Now, so we talked about the explicit nature of his books. We're now going to talk a little bit into the explicit nature of his personal life. Are we? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Because you can't talk about the Marquis de Sade without his depravity. So in October of 1763, 
he had acquired the services of a prostitute named Jeanne Testard. And prostitutes being a common theme in his life. And according to her report, he locked her in a room within his castle, asked her if she believed in God. She proclaimed that she did, and she was a devout Christian. And after proclaiming this to the Marquis, he began to protest at her that there was no God, began to insult Jesus and Mary, and then proceeded to masturbate into a chalice, stomp on a crucifix, grab another one, and use both of them again to masturbate together with, and repeated, bastard, I don't give a fuck about you. And as soon as Testard was released, she immediately went to the police, of course, and they arrested Marquis de Sade on October 29th and held him for 15 days on charges of blasphemy. Not wanting, obviously, to be in prison, he wrote several apologetic letters confessing his remorse, and then the king ordered his release on November 13th. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 that's the start. That was his first known uh, stint in jail. That's the beginning. So by September the following year, he had gained such a reputation for abusing prostitutes that the chief of police in France had to go to several brothels around the city and tell the madams that their ladies should not accompany the Marquis de Sade no matter what he claimed. Because obviously he's going to abuse them. There's been enough of that. The police also had tales on him and would also make detailed reports over the course of several years about his activities. One such report, which was dated October 1767, says, We will soon be hearing again of the horrors of the Comte de of Comte de Sade. Yeah, you will. Another account from the police reports, dated April 3rd, 1768, involves a 36-year-old German widow named Rose Keller. He had apparently approached her, inquiring about her services to clean his apartment, and they rode off to his estate and Arsil. And without saying anything to Rose Keller, he bound her up, kept her captive for two days, and according to her account, he flagellated her, and rumors said also cut, made cuts on her backs, on her thighs, and on her butt, uh, poured hot wax into them, and also masturbated into them. But when she was examined by the police, there were no physical evidence of any of this. Now, the day that she escaped, she claimed that he also applied ointment to her wounds and also, I think, like adding like salt water to them as well, just to cause her more pain, and then told her to clean the blood from her gown while he stepped out of the room, which gave her an opportunity to escape. And she actually escaped through a window, fled the area until she found the local authorities. And because of her reporting to the police, Desaad was arrested in June. He spent a few days in a local jail before being transferred to the prison at Chateau de Salmour. And Keller was actually soon bribed to drop all the charges against him. And then he was exiled to his home at Lacoste, which is kind of a, also another theme here. Another account later on happened on June 27th of 1772, when he procured four prostitutes for his valet, Latour, and during this orgy, 
he had ladies whipped and also requested that they do the same to him as well as to Lavdor. And it said that he engaged in sodomy with the two ladies before engaging in sodomy with Latour himself. For most of history, or at least during the Renaissance, sodomy is a punishable, if not a crime of death. In most cases, I think you looked it up for sodomy. Really? Yeah. Well, especially if you're having, if you're engaging in sodomy with another male. I'm being sarcastic. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So after the orgy was over, apparently Marquis de Sade and Latour offered the prostitutes some chocolate, which the Marquis had laced with a an aphrodisiac known as Spanish fly. It 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 did not go well. It's more like putting laxatives in chocolate. Not all the ladies took to the chocolate. Some of them were kind of suspicious because they were already suspicious of the Marquis. And but two of them did indulge in the chocolate they are said that they went pale felt sick and believed that they were being poisoned once they left his apartments they all went immediately to the police the marquis and latour were then sentenced to death in absentia meaning that they were sent into exile but then condemned to death in public they were burned in effigy and then charged both of them with sodomy and attempted poisoning and moral outrage. Now, the two men very soon fled to Italy, along with Marquis de Sade's wife's sister, Anne, who seemed to really enjoy taking part in his depravity. And Marquis also claimed that he'd been in love with his wife's younger sister, Anne, since she was 13. Yay. He was 32 at the time when they ran away, and she was 19. I'm really not that surprised. No. Why would I be surprised about that? No, no. Oh, it gets better. And was also a canonist at the Benedictine convent in Alice, and Desaad's mother-in-law very soon found out about this affair. And she found out where they were, and they were all imprisoned at a fortress of Miolans in 1772, and both Anne and Marquis escaped four months later. And then they fled back to his family estate at Lacoste, and they hid out there where he would continue his debauchery, along with his wife and his wife's sister, who also not only helped him to procure mostly prostitutes, but also both of them participated in the debauchery. Really messed up here. So in 1774, apparently he had gained the trust of five young girls and one manservant, all ranging in ages said to be between 14 and 16. In January the next year, their parents went to the police, claiming that the Marquis had kidnapped and assaulted all the children. Because of this, Desaad fled back to Italy again, and when he returned to Lacoste, the charges were dropped against him. So the following year, in 1775, he actually hired several women to come in and work as servants at Lacoste, but it's said that they very soon fled the castle. And one of the fathers of those women actually went to, to the castle with a loaded pistol and with the intention of confronting and killing the Marquis. 
Not surprised. Uh-uh. What was surprising is what happened during that confrontation, though. At point-blank range, the father attempted to shoot the Marquis. The pistol jammed. And then the father got his butt kicked. So later in the following year, in 1776, Marquis was actually tricked by authorities to visit his mother-in-law in Paris, who he was told was on her deathbed. She wasn't, though. He arrived, and he was promptly arrested and sent to Chateau de Vincennes again, and then given a death sentence for his various crimes. Again. And he was actually able to appeal the sentence two years later in 1778, but remained in prison due to a very specific item called a lettre de cachet. And this is a royal letter signed by the king. And in this case for the Marquis, it put him directly in prison, completely bypassing the courts. So directly to jail and no $200. And in Marquis de Sade fashion, he soon very quickly escaped jail. He scored very great jails. In 1784, still in Vincennes, it closed down. And then he was transferred to the Bastille. Now, 10 days before the starting of the Bastille, as I mentioned, he was transferred to the insane asylum at Charenton. And this was kind of really initiated because he tried to cause a riot at the Bastille, because they were going to storm it anyway. He's just adding fire to the fire. He's actually poking his head out of his cell window and shouting down to the people below, they're killing prisoners in here. And not, obviously not wanting the revolution to storm the Bastille, he was transferred out, but they did it anyway. Now, he was released from Charenton in 1790 when the National Constituent Assembly abolished his specific lettre de cachet, and as soon as he was released, his wife immediately filed for divorce. After all these years. She finally decided enough was enough. After about 30 years. Oh, Lord. I would have been done within a year. Not even. He was popular. His books were very popular. Except around certain people like Napoleon. So after the first publication of his most famous, well, his most famous novel that was published during his time, which was uh, Justine, 120 Days of Sorrow, was not published during his lifetime. Napoleon was so outraged by the book, he demanded immediate arrest of the anonymous author. Desaad was eventually tracked down at his publisher's office and immediately imprisoned without trial, probably like another lettre de cachet. He was accused of attempting to seduce fellow inmates at the St. Pelagie prison and then was transferred to another mental asylum. Conditions at this asylum, unlike Charenton, were actually quite harsh. His ex-wife and children intervened on his behalf and he was then transferred again to Charenton and 1803. And additionally, his family actually offered to pay his various fees while he was there because he had fairly lavish cells. Mm. His new wife, Marie Constance, 
was able to convince the abbe of Charenton that she was a relative of his and moved in with her husband at the asylum. I don't know that I would do that. Probably not. No. That doesn't sound like you, plus you'd want to keep what little sanity you have left. Uh, I, I mean, I, there's not much about his new wife. No, I don't know age or anything. There's not a lot. So I don't know how old she was either. Because by 1803, he's, he's in his 60s. She could be anything from 15 onward. Yikes, yeah. So the Abbe, Abbe de Coulmier, was actually quite progressive. As I mentioned, Charenton was actually one of the nicer asylums at the time. And he he's in his own different topic. He's really interesting. In the movie Quills, he's played by Joaquin Phoenix. And unlike a lot of mental institutions at the time, whether in France, America, England, just in Europe as a whole, plus the Americas, although in America, is, we're leaning more towards penitentiaries then we were necessarily asylums. The first asylum wasn't quite, I don't think, at this point yet. But particularly in Europe at the time, asylums were more of a place, like a Victorian asylum, just to dump people and forget about them. They weren't places for rehabilitation. They started off that way some time prior, but much like with a lot of mid to late Victorian asylums, the intention was to make the patients rehabilitated or just give them a, a, a comfortable place till they died. But they were built with in mind for maybe housing 500 patients and on opening within like a week of opening, they were at 1500 patients. So this is really not much different. And, but Abbe Comier was really encouraging various therapy treatments because a lot of people that were in Charenton were not going to get out of Charenton. But he encouraged art therapy and was very much into theater. So while Marquis de Sade was at Charenton, particularly for the last time that he'd be at Charenton, he encouraged the Marquis to write various plays for the inmates to perform, which were then encouraged to be watched by the people of Paris. I think in one way, it was also a way for the asylum to make money because people would come and I think pay for the tickets and it would kind of be like a for-profit donation kind of a thing. Now, despite Cormier's benevolent approach to the inmates, as I said, he's the exception to the rule at this time. Many of his colleagues denounced his practices. In 1809, due to his various behaviors, police sent the Marquis to solitary confinement and then deprived him of all of his writing materials because he's still writing books. He's not supposed to be writing books. They're not supposed to be published and he's still doing it anyway. In 1813, the Parisian government actually ordered Abbe Comier to, to desist from any and all theatrical performances because Marquis is still doing writing and he's not supposed to. During the last four years of his imprisonment in Charenton, Marquis in the same cell with his wife, took of a sexual relations in his late 60s with a 14-year-old employee named Madeleine Leclerc. Oh, I'm sorry. He was 70 at the time he started his relationship with a 14-year-old. Keeping in style with the Marquis there. 
course. I mean, it's the Marquis de Sade. The privateers. It's just, it's a fascinating life. It's disturbing, but it's fascinating. All of the above put together. The Marquis, <laughs> the Marquis de Sade died on December 2nd, 1814 in solitary at Sherrington. He also explicitly stated that he did not his want his body to be autopsied, so no autopsy for him, and that he should be left untouched for 48 hours after death. After that, he should then be placed in a coffin and buried on his property at Montmaison. Hey, uh, you think any of those uh, requests were, were followed or fulfilled? Absolutely not. I mean, no, of course not. With, with a mind like his, <laughs> I think we know where this one's going. Nope. None of his, he was actually ended up just being buried at Sherrington. And his skull was actually later removed from his grave and studied by phrenologists. Yep. Again, not surprising. That is also coming up in a few weeks for a couple other episodes. Ooh. Uh, due to his debauchery, scandalous affairs, imprisonment, and all the, just all of it, okay? His eldest son, who became his heir, or who was his heir, and inherited the title and the estates, decided to, you know, go about destroying his father's name and destroying him from history and getting rid of all of his unpublished works. So, essentially scratching out his cartouches. Yes, that does make me think of Hatshepsut. Mm Mm-hmm. But that was for a completely and utterly different reason. Yes, but still an attempt to erase them from history. Yes. The attempt... Correct. Failed. The reason, (laughs) not the same. Either way, the attempt failed. Hatshepsut's another episode. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. After, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) After his death, the title of Marquis was actually not used. They, They stopped, his family line stopped using it and he was... It, it just came with the attachments of all the scandal that came with the Marquis de Sade. And it wasn't until the late 1940s, you know, post-World War II. Uh, yeah, yeah, just barely past, yeah. Just like right after. When Comtavier de Sade began to use the title again. Javier didn't know Javier Xavier. Xavier. Sorry, I'm thinking of Spanish because I have two co-workers named Javier. <laughs> yes. Sorry. You might be listening to this episode. Hello. Uh, he's not. Oh. Okay. It wasn't until the late 1940s when Comte Xavier de Sade began to use the title again, and Xavier didn't even know about his ancestor. The the son. Didn't erase him permanently, but he definitely erased his father for a period of time. At least from society is knowledge, yes. Yes. And Xavier didn't learn about his ancestor, the Marquis de Sade, until he was actually approached by a journalist about him. And then he took a rather, he took a big interest in in his ancestor and decided to kind of look for stash papers and basically look for any mark of history that he left behind. Which he ended up finding! And he discovered a stash of Dessaud's papers at the Chateau of Condé-en-Bouy. 
And that's when he started to work with scholars to get those papers published. Xavier's son, Marquis Tibol de Sade, had decided to continue his dad's work on getting them published. And uh, they also have a trademark on the Marquis de Sade. I didn't know that. I mean, neither did I until I, till that, till this. Yeah. That's also when the Marquis de Sade became super popular. I'm not sure why, but okay. No, I know why. Come on. So he became, he started to become popular and there were more books being written about him, so on and so forth. If you listen to Melissa's earlier mention of the movie Quills, uh, movies were done about him, whether they're true to history or not is a whole other story. Yeah, he sort of had a mini renaissance as of the late 1800s. And took on the name Divine Marquis because he had all various revolutions throughout Europe going on at this time. Sure. He's so divine. One of the earliest books that was written about his life was written by Geoffrey Gorer in 1935, titled The Revolutionary Ideas of the Marquis de Sade. It's basically saying the Marquis' views on the revolution. He supposedly called him a reason a quote reasoned socialist end quote the first reasoned socialist yeah i'm still mm. yeah i still question this i mean mm. i still question it too but i think it's more just again based on the libertinism but libertinism as of at that time not libertine as the new political party here today whole different thing Yes, well, we kind of probably took it from that time period and stuff. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, some do see the Marquis de Sade as a precursor to Freud's psychoanalysis on sex. Again, I'm not really sure, but I'm I don't exactly. I don't exactly love Freud either, so it's just not surprising at all. What that I don't love Freud, or that but they're they're connected? Both. Yeah, the French author and playwright. Guillaume Apollinaire described him as, quote, the freest spirit that has yet existed, end quote. I just consider him mentally unstable. (laughs) It's been debated and discussed all of Desaad's work, whether they have philosophical views and the philosophical views on Desaad's work, whether or not he was using the ideas of the Enlightenment for his work or really adding in his own viewpoint. Others do also view him as a satir, a satirist, Lord above, a satirist to the Enlightenment ideas. I can't get that word out. Additionally, despite his abuse of women in both his life and his books, there have been some feminists who view him as a moral pornographer, quote, end quote. No. Just No. You're wrong, Angela Carter. <laughs> uh, who claims that he creates space for women. Again, no. Just no. I, I have to continue on the no. Uh, there are also those... There, there are also women who see him as a women-hating pornographer. Which, 
leads to, you know, that the, the thing known as violence towards women, you know. That's why I say don't take his books at face value. Read between the lines for the time that they were written in. I think you're asking a lot out of society today. I am. And I'm not expecting most people to read these books. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> As we, as Melissa stated earlier, the word sadism came from his name, the Marquis de Sad, Sadism, Sad, Sadism. And that's probably his most lasting legacy, although his writings are also there. Again, chances are that you're going to read the books versus know the word sadism. You're going to know the word sadism a lot more. Most people will know the word sadism, they just don't know the, the meaning what, or meaning as well but the history behind the formation of the word too or whom it belongs to because masochism also belongs to an actual person too yes was it a frenchman i'm kidding <laughs> i think it was german actually i'm i'm kidding oh, <laughs> oh god okay Sadism, sadism is defined as, quote, an exper- experiencing sexual arousal in response to extreme, extreme pain, suffering, or humiliation done non-consensually to others, end quote. That's not fun. I don't understand how you get off that. But okay. It is a dictionary definition. Yeah. Though it distinctly refers to non-consensual acts within the BDSM community, it does refer to consensual acts of sexual pleasure caused by inflicting pain on others. I don't think they're the same thing. One's non-consensual, one's consensual. One gets someone off. Within the community of BDSM, which is all about contracts and consensualism, it is inflicting pain on others for sexual pleasure. Outside of that one sphere community, it is non-sexual. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That's where you were going. Yes. Here's a couple of extra side notes for you for just some fun. Because we always got side notes. When do we not? (laughs) Uh, There were serial, serial killers, Ian Brady and Myra Finley, who were murderers of children. And carried out several terrible acts upon children. Yeah, these guys were gross. Uh, in England in the 1960s. And they were uh, apparently, they, they, they liked Desaad. And the life and ideas of the Marquis Desaad, which is a book, was found in their possession after their arrest. And Hinley, or Myra Hinley, did confess that Ian Brady, her partner, would send her to bookstores to acquire, to, to purchase Desaad books, writings by Desaad. And she also claimed that he would read them and he would become extremely aroused and then he would abuse her. I'm not sure why she stuck around, but at the same time, they were both murderers, so maybe she stuck around so that she wouldn't die and get caught. I'm not really sure. Uh, no, they were both incredibly depraved people. Oh. I don't know much about them. So you don't want to, don't, don't, don't look into it. You won't like it. Don't look into it, people. <laughs> in his book, Philosophy in the Bedroom, Desaad proposed the use of induced in- abortion for the purpose of population, cult- population control. Oh, oh my God. 
this mar th this would be the first time that the subject would ever be written about in a public platform, basically. And it has also been later suggested that Dassault's writings have also influenced medical and social acceptance of abortion in the West. Unfortunately, we are not in those times anymore. And he has had an influence, mainly because of his views on the revolution, but also his libertine ways. Yeah, I had to do it that way. <laughs> I had to do it in that in, in that accent. On pop culture and literature. So his name appears in horror movies and science fiction books. And by the way, this also includes Psycho. And the play Marat, Saad, by Peter Weiss, is a fictional story based on the Marquis' time while he was in Sheraton. Sheraton? Sheraton. 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 Yes. Sheraton. I'm so sorry. Yes. Now, before we jump away from Marat, Saad, um, you can read the play. It's a small dialogue. Uh, it's, I don't know, maybe 100 play pages. It's not very big. There's also a, a stage play performance uh, movie about it as well that I rented out some years ago from a public library. I did that at my campus library. I don't remember. And, of course, like we said, he's been in a lot of adaptations of films. Uh, and one of the first known, and actually the first known film to reference him is Le Age de Or from 1935, which references 120 Days of Sodom, the book he wrote in in prison. Yeah, the, in the Bastille. And, well, one of them. Yes. Well, one of them. It's the one he wrote on toilet paper. Yes. There's also Salo. Don't watch it. <laughs> I'm so glad I haven't just because of your face right now. I love Caligula, especially the 1970s movie with, what's his face? Great. I love him so much. Alex from Clockwork Orange. I don't remember. I have not seen Clockwork Orange in years. And by that, I mean it's been like 20 years. Oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bother me so much. Someone's yelling at the computer right now, probably. But um, oh, the, the, the movie Caligula is great, but it's it's got some of the people from... From Salo in it, Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell. McDowell. Yes, I'm, I'm such a big fan of Malcolm McDowell. But oh, oh, don't watch Salo. Don't watch Salo. Don't eat while watching Salo either. Oh, it's just don't watch it. Oh, just don't watch it. <laughs> it's one thing to read the book. You don't don't just don't watch it. There's so many things about the movie. It's gross. You're not convincing me to not watch it. Tank Girl, so much fun. Speaking of Dr. tell. But anyway, okay. that's me. Uh, which is also 120 Days of Sodom from 1975. And then there's 1989's Marquis, of course, based on his memoirs. And then, of course, Quills from the 2000s with Geoffrey Rush as... Oh, it's from the 2000s. 2000. You wrote 2000s. And 2000s quill, as in it came, aired in 2000. Oh. It my aired misunderstanding. 22 years ago. Did it really? Yeah. God, I feel old right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, and of course, this is not a real representation, it is fictional. And Jeffrey Rush, of course, plays the Marquis, and it also stars Kate Winslet and Joaquin Phoenix. If you haven't seen that one, that's a that's a good one to be okay with and start off with uh, if you haven't seen much. Um, it is rated R. Michael Caine's also in it as well. I forgot yes. he was in that. 
Um, it is definitely rated R, but it's not Sallow style. So it's more based off the life of Marquis while he's in Charenton towards his death, yeah. not based off of the books. It's still a... Kind of gory. Not, in, no, it's not, not, not gory in that sense. But like, it's abusive, but I, don't yes. call, I wouldn't call it gory. There's no blood. No, but it's definitely abusive yeah. and ex- sexually explicit. But it's worth a watch if you want to watch something that is very well produced about Marquis de Sade, his personality and his life and Sharon Tom. Just to get back a little bit into the Marquis himself. When de Sade was transferred from the Bastille on July 4th, he, of course, was not able to take 120 days of Sodom with him. The toilet paper roll had to stay behind. And the jail itself, the, the Bastille was, was stormed 10 days later, and the Marquis, the Marquis de Sade actually died believing that 120 days of Sodom was lost forever. He believed that that was his opus. But uh, someone had actually rescued it, or saved it, whatever you want to say. A man named Arnaud de Saint-Maximin, and he rescued it on the 12th, which is two days before the actual uh, uh, storming of the Bastille. And Saint-Maximin then took it to his home, and he just held on to it. And it was later acquired by the Villeneuve-Trans family. They were rather wealthy. And they held on to it for three generations until the late 1800s when it would be sold to a Berlin psychologist named Dr. Ewan Bloch. And he plub- he published <laughs> he published the first edition of, of 120 Days of Sodom in 1904, which is approximately... Well, it's, it, it's 119 years after... The book itself was originally written. Which you could have waited till the following year to make it 120 years after it was written for 120 days of Sodom. But no. <laughs> I don't exactly think they were thinking about that, but sure. Let's be angry at Dr. Ewan Bloch for it. <laughs> How dare you? I don't know. It's a theme here. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> and of course, in order to keep Censors away, he ended up having to use a pseudonym for the name, for the author, and he published 180 copies of it. And it continued to stay with the doctor until 1929, when it was purchased by the Viscount Charles de Noyes, whose wife was actually a direct descendant of Marquis de Sade. And she will be coming up at some point in a different episode. Sweet. It stayed in the fam- in that family until 1982 when the da- their daughter, Natalie, entrust- in- gave it to a friend, basically. She trusted this friend named Jean Gouet. Uh, well, Gouet was not who he said he was. He was a con artist. And he told her that it had been stolen and he-, he had actually smuggled it to Switzerland, where he then sold it to erotica collector Gerard Nord- Nordman for $60,000. Natalie would then go on to sue Nordman in 1990, and he would ignore the French government. And Switzerland, in 1998, the Swiss government basically declared that it had been lawfully acquired by Nordman, and he had acted in good faith. That's a quote. I'm not really sure he did, but sure. Let's go with that. It's Switzerland. I mean, let's talk about 
being neutral. neutral. Yeah. <laughs> in 2004, the manuscript would be placed on display at the Martin Bodmer Foundation Library in Geneva. And then nine years later, Nordman's heirs would try to sell it to a French collector. And the Bibliothèque Nationale de France had to raise $5 million in order to purchase the book, which would be split between the three children of Nordman. No. You said three parties. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the library, Nordman and his heirs, and then the original family. And the, the parties, not, not the heirs, the parties. Yeah. Why would, okay, whatever. Unfortunately, negotiations for it would end up falling through, and in 2014, it was bought by Gerard Leritier, founder of Aristotle, which was a company that owns the world's largest collection of manuscripts, which added Napoleon and Josephine's print. I added that just for you. I know, because I love that information. I know. You want to talk about one of my favorite historians, historic, historic characters, Napoleon. We will get into that at some point. Ooh, I yeah, know we will. Good. I mean, if we're going to talk about a French historic character, I want to talk about Napoleon. Sure. Yeah. If we're going to talk about other historic characters, I've got a ton. You know, we, I don't think we've still decided which series we want to do for next year yet. We have not. Mind you, you can do an entire series on Waterloo alone. <laughs> that that might be a little too much, though. <laughs> uh, and the manuscript was bought for $9.6 million. Yeah. Yeah. Holy moly. All right. You bought a roll of toilet paper for $9.6 million. <laughs> No comment right now. Uh, Leretier would put the scroll on display in his private museum of letters and manuscripts in Paris. And seven months later, the company was raided by anti-fraud officers and everything was confiscated and later sold. Oh, boy. This, 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 toilet, piece, this toilet paper roll has a journey. It has a journey and I'm surprised it survived the journey. When and once it was realized... What it was, particularly after it was published, I, th I think most people took very good care of it. In 2018, the scroll was officially declared a French national treasure, barring it from being sold off to anyone. And the government had 30 months, basically that's two and a half years, to come up with a sum in order to purchase it, uh, purchase it by the equivalent cost that it would be on the international market, which was in, of course, in the millions. Like we said, it was sold for $9.6 originally. Mm -hmm. Well, not originally, but to that last purchaser. And it probably went up in price since then. Well, when they wanted to buy it, heck yes. As of right now, it is still under litigation. Four years later. Yeah. Hmm. And there's been no news on what will happen to it, where to go, any of that. And right now it is just a, it is now a national treasure and it is believed that it may end up back at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Just also as a side note, he does, the, the Marquis de Sade does show up in horror films. Not just as a name drop, as actual characters. Yeah. 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 
in science fiction novels. Like, they, they're going to pull him in. Yeah. Though he isn't personally depicted in the novels, uh, his views and ideas are prominent, such as in Ada Palmer's Terra Incognita. Which is a sci-fi series, I think. Yes. As far as I know, it is. I could be absolutely insane. I've never heard of it until I did the research, so I don't know. And I don't it's, do science fiction. Uh, I do do science fiction, but it's not a book that I has really landed in my purview. Either, Although, so. what about you're about to say next about the series makes me want to read it. And the <laughs> the book does take place on Earth in the year 2454. And the philosophies of the time are set around the Enlightenment. Hmm... Uh, specifically on those of Voltaire, Diderot, and Desaad. Of course you want to read it. <laughs> I do. Uh, you put Voltaire and Desaad in the same book? I'm going to read it. Yeah, I know you are. And he also has a, a prominent character in the very rather famous Assassin's Creed Unity. Yes, I've seen clips of that on YouTube. It's fun. <laughs> He's very well, Assassin's Creed just looks like fun. I haven't been able to purchase that and play it, but it just watch the clips on YouTube. The Marquis is just lounging there. He's very hedonistic in that. It's great. A descendant of Desad, Hugues de Sade. It's just Hugo. Is it? Because it's not spelled that way. But then again, my French is not existing. Or I it, it might a... just be like Hugh. We'll just go Hughes. Yeah. Hughes de Sade who also sells wine, spirits, and beer, and he does it under the brand name Maison de Sade. And he also has a bronze copy of his ancestor's skull on his desk. And as of 2018, he actually had a plan of marketing a de Sade line of lingerie with Victoria's Secret, which sounds so disturbing. I don't know what that would have meant. Because I don't think that went through. Or at least not in America. No, I don't no. know about you. That sounds so disturbing. Well, I think it would have been Did the Sad name. I don't know that it would have been Marquita Sad relative lingerie. Did I mention that it was disturbing still? <laughs> I don't want anything with the Sad near any part of my body. <laughs> I am good to go. Thank you very much. If it was Halloween-themed or something, I would get a little more kick out of that, but... Nope. I think I it's wouldn't just, even do that. I think he's just trying to bank more on the sad name by also asking Victoria's Secret to have a line of lingerie. Yeah, well, I think I'm done now. That was the last bit of information for this series. For I at least can't. For, for Marquita Sad today. I can do no more right now. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. In that case, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. I really hope you didn't let your children listen to this. <laughs> or the, for the rest it's of the terrible month. for them. <laughs> and hmm. we do hope you stick around all next week and listen to more of they're, our lovely... They're not as bad. They're not as bad. This is probably the worst episode we have done. <laughs> No? What's the worst episode? Oh, okay. I know. Th- I think I it's this one. I thought it was good. I mean, I thought DeRay. We're talking about, like, I'm talking about in, in forms. Well, Gilles DeRay doesn't exactly go straight far from the, the topic. 
Well, here, okay, at the least, you can see Gilles as we mentioned before, potentially was a child serial killer. There's no actual evidence that he did that. It was all church. I still believe he did it. But at least in Desaad's defense, he neither wrote about child killing nor participated in child killing or molestation. It wasn't consensual, but they were at least adults. I don't think that's a defense. It's not much of one, but it's it's not a defense at all, period. What are you talking about? Not much of one. What? What? (sighs) No, I'm signing us off. That's it for this episode of History Explains It All, and we hope you're willing to continue into next week on Halloween episodes. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope to see you next week as we check through history to explain it all. Bye-bye. I think I broke her. <laughs>